Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining our Torah portion class. And the Torah portion this week is Kitavo, which, again, if you're in your blue um, office, this is like a religious religion. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the office. Today's Torah. So I do Today's Torah portion is Kitavo, which in your blue Oscar Chumash is page 1068. And if you're in any other Chumash, if you're in any other Chumash, it's uh, chapter 26 of the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. Can everyone hear me? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay. Um, give me one second here. I just want to adjust something. Okay. So, today's Torah portion Kitavo is on page 1068 in your Aspal It begins with the mitzvah of Bikurim, the mitzvah of bringing the first fruit. And the Torah tells, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, when you come to the land of Israel, that God will give you as an inheritance and you will settle and dwell in the land, says the Torah, you shall take from the first fruit of your harvest, place it in a basket, and bring it to the place that God will choose for his dwelling place, which of course is a reference to the holy temple in Jerusalem that God chose as his dwelling place. And you shall bring this basket of fruit and present it to the Kohen. And then the Jew would make a declaration of gratitude. And he would say to Hashem in the presence of the Kohen, I am bringing this first fruit as an expression of my thankfulness to God for the blessings and the food and the harvest that he has given me. However, it wasn't as straightforward as that. The Jew would first go into a review of Jewish history. He would tell the whole story of how we got to the land of Israel. He would start by saying how we were slaves in Egypt. Actually, he went further back. He, taught, he starts by talking about Laban, how Laban oppressed Jacob when he worked for him. And then our Jacob's family came to Egypt and we were slaves in Egypt and we cried out to God and God heard our cry and saw our plight and our distress and our affliction. And he took us out of Egypt with great wonders, signs and miracles. And he brought us to this land, the land of Israel, flowing with milk and honey. And now I have brought the first fruit as a gift of acknowledgement and appreciation and gratitude to God. Now, the opening of this week's parsha could not be 
overstated as perhaps the most significant aspect of Judaism. The idea of this commandment is in simple English, the word gratitude. The Torah is telling us a lesson in gratitude that when you have your new harvest, your new year, bring the first bushel, the first basket. And the Talmud actually tells us that the farmer, when he saw the fruit, how did he know which was the first fruit? It doesn't just mean the first fruit that he picked. It means that when he saw the fruit ripening in the field, he would tie a string around it to know which were the first fruits to ripen. And then when the, all the fruit ripened, he would take those first fruits, saying the first of everything is to God. Acknowledgement, appreciation. Now, we know that we are called Jews. Why are we called Jews? Because in Hebrew, we are Yehudim. What is a Yehudi? I am a Jew. I am a Yehudi. Means I descend from Judah. Now we know there are 12 tribes of Israel, not just one. So why do we say we're from the tribe of Judah? We may be from another one of the 11 tribes. But collectively, we assume the name Judah. Why? Because the word Yehuda, as when Leah gave birth to Judah, her fourth child, she said, this time I will give thanks to God. Hapam odeh et Hashem. I'll give thanksgiving to God. And therefore, the word Yehuda means to give thanks. And to, when you say, I am a Jew, you know what you're saying? I am a person who lives with gratitude to God. That's what it really means. The first word in our prayer book, every morning you get up, you have a whole list of prayers that you're going to say throughout the day. There's shacharit, there's mincha, there's arvit, there's blessings for food, there's blessings after food, there's blessings for the shema, the bedtime shema. I mean, lots of prayers. But you know what the first word that's supposed to come out of your mouth every morning is? Modeh. The second word, ani. I give thanks to you, almighty God, living and eternal king, that you return my soul to me. I'm alive. I woke up this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for giving me another day. <coughs> so the word moda is fundamental. Gratitude, thankfulness. And what does the Torah tie it into? Joy and happiness. First, you give thanks. And then what does the Torah say in verse 11 of this opening chapter 26? And then you shall rejoice, find happiness in all the good that God has given you and your household. You, the Levite, because the Levite doesn't have land, so he has to join you in the food and the offerings. The stranger in your midst, in other words, all the ingredients for a good life are contained in this opening paragraph. It's about reaping the fruit of your labor through hard work, but acknowledging the source of those blessings. And then when you have gratitude, you will have joy in what God has given you. And you should share those blessings with those who have less, who are less fortunate. This is the greatest roadmap, the greatest blueprint for happy, successful living. And as I said in the beginning, it cannot be overstated. That's why we start our day with the words modani. That's why we're called Yehudim. A matter of fact, you know, three times a day, we say the Shimon Asri, morning, afternoon, and evening. 
And there's a special blessing of gratitude in the Shmonesri. It's called Modim Anachnulach. We give thanks to you, Almighty God. Right? Next time you're in the synagogue or if you're at home, look it up. It's towards the end of the Shmonesri. And we bow our heads in acknowledgement when we say it. But here's the amazing, amazing thing. There are 18 blessings to the Shmonesri. The way it's structured, just that you know, if you're not taking Rabbi Tani's uh, pray like a pro class, if you did, you'll know this. There's 18 blessings. The first three and the last three are thankfulness or acknowledging God's greatness and power and gifts. The middle 12 are personal requests. We ask for wisdom. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for redemption. We ask for sustenance. We ask for healing. We ask for 12 different things. But then when we conclude the Shmanesha, we <laughs> go back to thanking God. And we have a prayer, the word Hoda. And we all know that there's the silent Amidah and then there's the repetition of the Amidah. Now, what do you do in Shul when the Chazan is doing the repetition? You listen, hopefully, and you answer Amen to every blessing. You say, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you Hashem, Baruch Hu Hashemel, blessed is He and blessed is His name. And then when the Chazan finishes it, you say amen. So in the silent Amidah, you remain silent. In the repetition, you say amen. There's one exception. There's one blessing out of the 18 blessing that when the Chazan says it, you don't merely say amen at the end of the blessing, but the entire congregation rises, bows their head, and says a version of that prayer on their own. And that is modim. When it comes to the prayer of modim, next time you're in the city, you look to the right side, is a something called Modim de Rabbanan, the thank you of the rabbis that was inserted that the congregation should say simultaneously alongside the Chazan as he's saying Modim. And the question is, why is, is this the exception? Why is this the only prayer that we don't just say Amen, thank you, uh, Amen, the word I mean is consent. It's like your verbal consent to what the Chazan says. Why do you have to actually say the mode in the Rabbanan? And here there's a famous interpretation given by the Vujraham, a commentary on the Siddur, and he says basically saying thank you, you cannot have an emissary do it on your behalf. You cannot have a Chazan thank God on your behalf. You can't outsource gratitude. You have to personally chime in stand up and give your own personal expression of gratitude. But I'm going to show you something furthermore, how important gratitude is in Judaism. If you look in the Siddur at the Modim, the Rabbanan, the thankful prayer that we all say alongside the Chazan, at the very end of the prayer, we say, Modim Anach that you are our God, and we give thanks for everything. And then the conclusion of the Modim the Rabbanan prayer is Al Shanachnu Modim Lach, which means we give thanks to you, God, for the fact that we are grateful to you. In other words, what the prayer is saying is we're grateful for the fact that we are grateful people. The greatest gratitude is that I am a grateful person. The worst, I don't want to use the word curse, but the worst handicap a person could have in life is where there's no gratitude. Because if you don't appreciate what you have, what's been given to you, 
then how could you find happiness or joy in anything? The higher your gratitude and appreciation, the higher your joy in life will be. And therefore, we, amongst, we always think, thank God for the, my blessings, for my food, for my children, for my spouse, for my uh, health. Yeah, of course. But you know what the punchline of the whole prayer is? I give thanks to you, God, that we are people who are grateful to you. Thank God we have God in our life and that we are grateful to God for our blessings. That's perhaps the highlight of our, of our gratitude, that we are grateful people. We all know this, that we teach children from an early age to be grateful. You give, I remember a woman in, my, in our shul once told me, Ever since our children were young, if a child wanted something, they would hand it to the child and they would not release it from their hand till the kid said, thank you. Kid wants a banana. You hand them the banana. You don't let go till they say thank you. He, she taught our kids gratitude. You know, I still have children at home, right? There's nothing more beautiful when you do something for your child and they say, thank you, Tati. You take them somewhere. They say, thank you. Why does that make you happy as a parent? It's not because your ego swells. Nah, that's, you don't do it for the thank you. But it's so refreshing and so delightful and so wonderful to see that your kids appreciate things. Because you know if they're grateful people, they'll be happy people. And that's why God wants us to express gratitude. God doesn't, people always sometimes think, why does God need us to sing his praises in the synagogue? Well, God needs to hear us tell him how great he is. And of course, God doesn't need us to tell him how great he is. He's God. He's infinite. But God needs children, human beings who are grateful for what was given to them. And if you look in the opening prayers or blessing or declaration or commandment about the first fruit, the Torah always reiterates, reiterates again and again that you should thank God for what he has given you. You should rejoice in all the God, the good that God has given you. In other words, it's so easy to think we achieve this on our own. My accomplishments, my success, my hard work, my brilliance, my intelligence, my skills, my charisma, my whatever. Torah reminds us who gave this to you. Who gave you even the ability to be successful or to have blessings? So you have to stop and think. Not everyone has health. Not everyone has all the blessings you have in your life. Don't take it for granted and don't think you achieved it on your own. Hashem, there's a million things that had to happen for you to achieve that blessing. For you to be alive and for you to be able to, whatever it may be. And in life, it's very unfortunate, but we typically don't appreciate things truly until it's taken for us. So if anyone uh, sick, God forbid, I don't even want to talk about terrible sicknesses. You get the flu and you're in bed for a week. And then you regain your strength and you're like, wow, it feels so good to be strong and healthy, right? And I remember going to the Blind Museum in Israel. If you've never been there, put it on your list of things to do in Chilon, right outside of Tel Aviv. You spend 90 minutes in pitch dark. Literally, you can't see anything. There's no windows. It's perfectly black. And when you walk out after 90 minutes and you could see, it, 
for the next few days at least, you are so grateful every time your eyes can see something. Now, your tour guide is actually blind. So you come out and you can see, and he still can't see. You're like, okay, I had 90 minutes of blindness. This guy has a lifetime of blindness. Am I not the luckiest person in the world? So the Torah, it, it takes effort to always remind yourself to be grateful. And that's why we have people say, why so many prayers? You know, the Talmud says something beautiful. It says, there's a verse in the book of Psalms. It says, Kol every soul, the Hallel Ka praises God. But the rabbi said the word Nishama is from the word soul, but also breath, because God blew the breath of life into Adam. That's your soul. So rabbis say, I'll call Nishima Nishima. For every breath, we should thank God. So the question is not why we have so many prayers in Judaism. The real question is, why do we have so few prayers? Because really, every time you take a breath, you should thank God. You just got a gift. You know the story, <coughs> there was a king who was eating fish and a bone got stuck in his throat. And so yeah, he can't breathe, he's turning colors, he's turning blue and somebody comes and does the Heimlich maneuver on the king and <coughs> the bone comes flying out of his throat. And he takes that first breath after not breathing for, I don't know, two minutes. And he turns to the person who saved his life and he says, he says, tell me, what would you like as a reward for, for saving my life? And the fellow said, your honor, your majesty, I'll take half of what you would have given me when the bone was still stuck in your throat. When the bone is stuck in our throat, we'll do anything, God. Just save me from this situation. Just, just, just make this problem go away. Just resolve this thing, right? And there's a million and one jokes about this. I don't have to tell you them already, but... Uh, you know, the guy looking for the parking space and he can't find the parking space. He has a very important business meeting. He says, God, if you only find me a parking space, I promise I'll be a good Jew. I'll come to Shul on Shabbos every week, you know. As he finishes his prayer, in the spot right in front of the building where his meeting is, a car pulls out. And he looks up to heaven and says, God, never mind, I found the spot, right? We quickly forget, you know, the situation we were in and how desperate we were and how much we prayed to God and how much we said if God would only help us in this blessing, boy, we would never forget this one. This one would be eternally grateful, right? But human nature is human nature. So the mitzvah of Bikurim is essential to Judaism. And when we talk about, and we could go in many directions here, but Judaism, it says, God made a world of chesed, kindness. Everything God does for us is constant kindness. And when we know when Isaac was looking for a wife, his father Eliezer sent, uh, I'm sorry, his father Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to find a girl. And what did he do? He went to the well and he found Rebecca. What was the sign he made? The girl who would offer water for me and the camels, who has kindness. And our rabbis say, what about her belief system, her ideology, her, her, her outlook? You know, in other words, he tested her character, her midot. And he saw that she's a very kind person. She offered water for Eliezer and the, and the camels. But how do you know uh, Rivka came from a house of idolatry? Her father was Bituel. Her brother was Laban. How did he know this would be a good woman for Isaac? And one of the 
approaches of the rabbis is that if a person has kindness, they'll ultimately come to serve God. Why? Because a kind person feels a debt of gratitude. Who gave me this life? Where did it come from? Why am I here? Who gave me eyes that see and, and, and a heart that beats and, and on and on and on and, and who gave me my spouse and who gave me my children, who gave me everything, right? Who gave me my parents, right? So the point is you will seek out and discover God. So kindness and faith in God go hand in hand. Person who's comfortable living their life without any debt of gratitude to God, is, be, is it because they don't believe in God or because they don't wanna feel indebted to anyone? They don't wanna feel uh, any sense of obligation to acknowledge, to appreciate, to uh, follow Hashem. So gratitude is very much intertwined, not just with good character, but also with um, the faith and the fundamentals of Judaism. So that is the opening mitzvah. And that's why, as I said, when you come to the land, uh, that almighty God, Hashem will give to you as an inheritance. You know, take a look at Israel. Let's take 1948. There's two ways to look at modern-day Israel. One way is a secular way. We Jews, after the Holocaust, decided enough is enough, never again. We went, we built the best army in the world, and we beat all our enemies, and we stood up, and we did this on our own. And we get all the credit. And then there's the perspective of a religious Jew that is, as Moshe says, God brought you to the land of Israel. Of course, you had to do your part. You had to fight the wars and conquer the land. But this is a gift that Hashem has given our generation. And therefore, when you go to Israel, you don't just say, wow, we have such a good army. We have such a good intelligence. We have such good this, such good the." No. Thank you, Hashem, that our generation was blessed, that you deem that we are the ones that are deserving or at least fortunate enough to receive this gift in our lifetime of the land of Israel. This is something you have given us. And that's true in everything we do and experience in life. One of the points I want to point out is that when it talks about bringing the first fruit to the temple, the verse says, you shall go to the place. This is in verse two. You should take from the first fruit and bring it to the place that God has chosen to cause his name dwell and rest there. Now, of course, what is it referencing? The holy temple, Jerusalem, the Kohen. But why doesn't the Torah say you should go to the holy temple in Jerusalem? Give us the location. Give us the, the address where to bring the first fruit. Instead, the Torah says, go to the place that God will choose to dwell his name there. Why so vague? And there's, again, a lot of discussion. Should have said, go to the Jerusalem. And one of the many interpretations to this is that what God is telling us is that it's a twofold answer. First thing is, you have to find the place that God chose to dwell his, his, his name there. It's not so simple like, here's the location. God wants us to seek him out. He wants us to discover him. He wants us to find him. He doesn't make himself just readily available and accessible. He wants to see how much desire and determination you have to discover him. And that's true not only geographically with the building of the Holy Temple, but spiritually, every one of us 
God doesn't just make himself evident to us. He doesn't just reveal himself to us. He says, if you want a relationship with me, you're going to have to seek me out. You're going to have to discover me. You're going to have to find me. You're going to have to search to find God. And that's what this whole period of Elul and the high holidays is. How much time and energy are you willing to invest to discover God through learning, through praying, through doing good deeds? God doesn't just reveal himself to everybody. In proportion or co co commensurate to your investment in having a relationship with him, he will reciprocate and parallel your movement towards him. And the more you move towards God and seek out God, he will find you. So therefore, it's the place that I will choose to make my place dwell, name dwell. You have to find God. And every person in the recesses of their heart discovers God in their own way through their particular mitzvah, their particular connection to God, their particular study subject. You know, you know there's a whole plethora of Jewish topics and subjects and mitzvot. God gave us 630 commandments. Everyone finds their way to connect to God. Some people connect to God through intellectual pursuit, study. Some people through action. Some people through acts of kindness. Everyone can find their way, but you're going to have to invest in that relationship. Because think about any meaningful relationship. Any meaningful relationship takes effort, takes time, takes devotion. But furthermore, by leaving the address vague, what the Torah is saying is that, you know where you find me? It's not just in a particular place. It's wherever you choose to make God's name dwell. God is not relegated to Jerusalem. Of course, that's the capital. That's where God's primary residence historically was and the greatest holiness exists. But God's not limited or isolated to Jerusalem. You could live in Palm Beach, you could live in uh, Australia, you could live in New Zealand, you could live in China. God will come to wherever you choose to make his name dwell there. If a Jewish family, a Jewish community wants to create a presence of God anywhere in the world, they have the freedom to do that because God will come there where you choose to make his name known, where you pronounce his presence. And furthermore, there is no place that, that, that's too distant. Now, when I talk about too distant, we're not only talking about geographically that you could be in Timbuktu. I mean spiritually distant. Sometimes a person can think, I'm too far off. I'm so far off the beaten path. There's no way God can come dwell in me. I'm, I've done such terrible things. I'm, 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 you know, I'm an addict. I have these problems. Who knows, right? The worst life circumstances. And Judaism over and over again teaches and coming to the high holidays, it's never too late to do Teshuvah. There's a famous story about a man by the name, this is a classic story in the Talmud, a man by the name of Elazar ben Dadaya. The Talmud says there was not a harlot, a promiscuous woman that he had not visited. He had been to all the promiscuous women uh, far and wide. He would even travel overseas if there was a woman of ill repute that had a good rep uh, reputation that interested him. And one time he went to see a certain woman in a far off place. And she apparently made a comment to him that basically you're, you're a low life. Now, when a woman like that tells you you're a low life, you know, you're really a low life because she's seen all the low lives already. Right. 
And the Talmud says that he it, somehow this shook him to his core. It like was an awakening for him. And the Talmud describes how he went into the out in the field and he started to cry. And there's a whole lengthy story how he learned he turned to the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains, which means intercede for mercy on my on my on me. And each one responded and said. That the matter is in your hands. We can't help you. And the Talmud says he cried and cried with such deep regret and remorse over the way he lived his life that his soul expired from anguish, from distress, from pain, from regret, from teshuva. And the Talmud concludes by saying, oh, the Talmud says that a heavenly voice went out and said, Rabbi Elazar ben Dodaya. Imagine this playboy is now called Rabbi Elazar ben Dodaya. The gates of heaven are open for you now. And Rebbe, the great Rabbi Judah Nasi, when he heard the story, he said, he cried. And he said, there are some people who work their whole life to attain the world to come. And then there are those people who could attain the world to come, Olamaba, in one hour. And the point is, Wherever you are, you could seek out God. You could discover God wherever you may be. Another very important point that comes out of this story, <coughs> story of Bikurim, the story of gratitude, is that the farmer doesn't just show up with his basket and say, God, thank you for this great, delicious, succulent, bountiful, luscious uh, harvest. No, what does he do? He starts telling a story. Our ancestor, Jacob, was working for Laban, an Aramean, and he pursued him and he oppressed him and he tried to kill him. And then the Jews went to Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt. And then God heard our cry and our plight. And then God took us out of the land of Egypt and he brought us to the land of Israel, gave us this land. And now we're farmers and we work this land that's flowing with milk and honey and we have beautiful fruit and we're presenting it to God as a gift. In other words, what you have really here is a review of Jewish history. Why do we have to review, <laughs> review Jewish history? Because very often we look at our blessings, but we don't think of them in its full context. We don't understand the origins of these blessings. So how many times do you meet immigrants? wherever they may be from. And I'll tell you, just this Shabbat, we had a family that had an afraf in the shul. It was a wedding yesterday in the shul, and both families are from Morocco. And after the boy and girl dated, they met on a dating app. They discovered that their grandparents were friends back in Morocco. But one of the family members was telling me at the shul, Kiddush, that how did that family come to America? There was some salesman who was selling stuff overseas, and they were came to the family, some friend of the family, and they said, you know, we're trying to immigrate from Iraq. He says, you know what, I know a job for you. And he put, got him a job in America. And then the grandparents came over and the family was saying, the whole family was there for the wedding. They said, our whole family would not be here today if not for this person, right? So especially if you're a descendant of Holocaust survivors, two of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, right? It's easy for me to say, oh, thank you, God, for my beautiful life and my family here in Palm Beach, Florida. How did you get to Palm Beach, Florida? How did you get to America? Your grandparents went through Auschwitz. I'm talking about my grandparents, right? 
you can't be grateful for the moment without remembering all the sacrifices, all the hardship that was made along the way to get you to this point in life. So if you really want to experience true gratitude, you have to think about history, Jewish history, the generations that preceded you, that paved the path for you to now experience these blessings in your life. So we can never just look at our blessings in isolation. We have to understand the context, how they came about, where they arrived from. And then when you understand the magnitude and the depth and the expansiveness of what, what, it, what, what, what went into creating these blessings in your life, then you could experience the full measure of gratitude. And that's why the Jew would not just state, thank you for my blessings, but he would review everything that came before it. And I know we're spending a lot of time on this uh, mitzvah Bikurim, first fruit. And by the way, the, the, there's another major message of first fruit. And that is, what do you give God? Do you give him the leftovers or do you give him the best? Is it like, okay, now I got to go to work, do everything I have to do. And then if at nighttime, after everything else is done, if I have some spare time, I'll study some Torah. That's one way to do it. If I finished everything on my to-do list, and I still have some extra time, I'll go to shul and dab. Or do you say, no, 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 no. I just got up in the morning. What's the best hour of your day? The best hour of your day is usually the first hour of the day. You're the freshest. You're the most alert. You have the most energy. So the first thing I'm going to do is go to shul. I'm going to dab in. I'm going to learn. Now that I've given my best, my first fruit to God, now I go do my work and make a living and do all the other things I have to do. I'm not going to give the worn out, exhausted hour of my day to God. I'm going to give him the freshest and the best part of my day. And this applies to everything in life. What is the hour you give to your spouse? What is the hour you give to your children? Is it the last hour? And it's not just time, it's everything. Do you give the best of what you have to God? And when I say God, it's not only God, it's what God wants you to devote it to. So first fruit represents priorities in life. What do you prioritize? Is God a priority? Is your family a priority? Do they get the best or do they get the last? Sometimes your family gets the last. When you come home at the end of the day and you're exhausted, you have barely any strength, you, you talk to your kids or your spouse, right? or your loved ones, as opposed to, no, I'm going to give them the best of my time and the best of my energy. That's why we have Shabbat, right? To make sure we're devoting the best of our time. I just saw this great quote today that said that, it's a little counterintuitive, but people say that happiness is, people think happiness is money, right? So I trade my time for money. I work hard, I give up time to make money. And that will lead to happiness because the more money I have, the happier I'll be. That's the normal way to think, right? The counterintuitive way to think is I'll trade my time. Uh, not that I'll trade my time for money. I'll trade my money for time. The goal of life is to have quality time. And the purpose of the money is to be able to buy you the freedom to have quality time. So... Shabbat is a day of prioritizing, saying, okay, what am I going to use Shabbat for? I'm going to use it for what matters. Hashem, my family, my soul, 
that's that's the first fruit, so to speak. So that's another whole idea of first fruit. But at the end of this uh, declaration, the Jew would say something very interesting. He would say, God, I've done everything you've asked me to do with my bountiful harvest. I brought the first fruit. I gave the tithes that I have to give to the Kohen, to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, to the poor. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And now, this is a very unique uh, type of a mitzvah where the Jew says, I I didn't violate any of the laws and the commandments associated because there are various laws that you can't eat the holy food when you're in a state of uh, aniyut. Aniyut means uh, mourning. And listen to this punchline. Then he says, God, I've listened to your voice. I've done everything you told me to do. And here's the concluding verse. Couldn't be more beautiful. God, look down, gaze down from your holy abode. Bless the nation Israel. The land that you've given us, as you swore to our ancestors, as you promised our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the Jew says, God, I've done what you've asked me to do. And now I ask you in return to look down on us and bless us. And again, the theme here obviously is that when we follow Hashem's instructions with what he has given us, then we can turn to God and say, we've done what you've asked us to do. Now we're in a position to ask you to do what what we have asking you to do which is to bless us and the nation and the land of Israel. So the, Greg just posted that you could fix every problem by uh, shutting it off um, and starting it over, which includes yourself, which I think his point is that you, we all need a, a restart. Is that what you're saying? So there's a great line. There are two things I wanted to say on that. The first thing is there's a great line that says all Usually when you press the pause button on something, it stops. But on humans, when you press the pause button, it starts. We start really functioning as human beings when we press pause. And that's what Shabbat. Shabbat is a 25-hour pause every week. But we don't have to wait till Shabbat. When we go to shul to pray, we're pressing pause to reflect. When we study Torah, we're pressing pause. We can't just be on the treadmill of life all the time because as someone said, even if you win the rat race of life, you're still a rat. So therefore you have to get out of the rat race sometimes. But there's another point and that's, uh, Greg just triggered that idea, that the idea of pausing, of starting anew, right? Turn it off and start again. You know, we are human beings and one of the things human beings love is something new. There's a reason that when you go to the store, when they want to sell you a product, they always say new, new and improved. The word new is a very attractive word to us human beings. Um, it's just part of our DNA. We like freshness. We like newness. Why do people run out to, to, to read the, the, the daily newspaper, right? The news, right? Something new, right? Um, we're attractive to newness. And 
Rosh Hashanah is coming, a new year, right? Uh, children just started the new school year. Uh, if you spend time on social media, parents love posting pictures of their kids going off to school on the first day with their backpack, right? It's very exciting. It's a new year. We love things that are fresh. And as a matter of fact, the Torah says, you should learn the Torah and keep the commandments that have commanded you today. And the rabbi said, what do you mean today? What's the emphasis today? Of course it's today. The day God's telling you this. And no, every day you should keep the commandments like it was given to you today, fresh. Hot off the press. The Torah was just published today for the first time. Can't get a, wait to get a, a copy. Ever see when a store is releasing a new book like a Harry Potter back in the day. People line up all night around the store at Barnes and Nobles to get the first copy, right? Everyone loves newness and freshness. So the new harvest is in a way to generate new excitement. It's, it's, a, it, it's a new harvest, gratitude to God. The new year, Rosh Hashanah is coming. It's a new year. We have to be. Now, we make a mistake when we think everything that's new is good. There are a lot of things that are new that are bad. And there are things that are very old that are very good. And that's the funny thing about life, that some, at some point something becomes an antique. It's so old that it becomes exciting again because it's so old. Um, so either someone's driving an, a, a brand new car or they're driving a very old car. Either way, it's exciting, right? So the point is to inject newness. There's a new harvest utilizes an opportunity. And that's another thing we do as Jews. Whenever there's a new milestone in life, any great milestone, a new beginning, whatever level it may be. Uh, we infuse that new beginning with acknowledgement, appreciation, gratitude, and thankfulness to Hashem. Let's go on from the midst of Bikurim. We now come to the second segment of this week's Torah portion, which is the reciprocal covenant that God says, I am making, Moshe Rabbein, who is saying, God is making with you today. And he says, God today, is commanding you to do these mitzvot. It's verse 16 in the chapter 26. And you shall guard and keep them, these commandments with all your heart and all your soul. And then the key verse here, verse 17. You have been distinguished by Hashem today. No, you have distinguished Hashem today to be a God for you and to walk in His ways and to observe His decrees, His commandments, His statutes, and to hearken to His voice. And Hashem has distinguished you to be for him a treasured people as he spoke to you to observe all of his commandments, to make you supreme over all the nations that he made for praise, for renown, for splendors, that you'll be a holy people to Hashem, your God, as he spoke. What this, these two verses are saying is that there is a covenant between God and the Jewish people. Just like a husband and wife, they distinguish each other, they choose each other, they pledge fidelity and loyalty and devotion to each other. God says, that's our relationship with God and the Jewish people. You have distinguished me to be your God, and God has distinguished us. And it's a relationship that is mutual, but also a relationship that's based on responsibilities. We are committed to observing God's commandments and following in his ways, and he is committed to having us as his nation to be a nation that will be for renown, for splendor, for praise, and a holy nation. Holy means lead a more sacred life devoted to God. So we have a responsibility as Jews above and beyond other nations. So comes Rosh Hashanah. This is a good example. 
In America, January 1st is, is New Year's. What do people do? Well, first you go out for a New Year's party and the more alcohol you could consume, the better. And the more, the louder the music is at the party, the better. And the more paraphernalia and uh, fireworks you could explode, the better. And when the, you know, midnight, everybody's drinking and partying, happy new year with the hats and the glasses and all the fun, right? And then you go home uh, half drunk and uh, you go to sleep at one or two o'clock at night. You wake up late the next day and I don't know what you do the rest of the day. You go find a sale for new year sale, maybe or whatever, you have a barbecue, okay? Not the most spiritual, meaningful, inspirational way to celebrate a new year. What do we do on Rosh Hashanah, our Jewish New Year? We start by going to shul on the night of Rosh Hashanah to pray, to thank God, to welcome the new year. Then we sit down with family and friends for a meaningful Rosh Hashanah dinner where we hopefully discuss resolutions for the new year, review the past year, share words of Torah about the meaning of the creation of man on Rosh Hashanah, which is the day God created Adam and Eve. We dip the apple in the honey. We say prayers for a sweet new year. Then we get up in the morning. We go back to shul. And what do we do? We hear the shofar to arouse us, to awaken us, to call us to action, to become better. And we have a longer service than the rest of the year. And then we have another holiday meal. We invite friends and family and discuss more words of Torah and more inspiration. <laughs> And then we go to the body of water to throw away our sins, to do the Tashluk service, to cast away all of our sins, to cleanse ourselves for the new year. Then we have a second meal and then a second. And then we go back to second day Rosh Hashanah and we read more Torah and we hear the more shofar, right? That's the way Jews do it. Why? Because you're not just an ordinary nation. You can't just go to a club and, and have a, a New Year's party with with a DJ and, 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 and alcohol. That's not what Rosh Hashanah is. It's a new year. It's a new beginning. It's a way to better yourself, to, to, work, to come closer to your family, to your friends, to think about your direction in life, where you've been, what you've done. It's a whole different way to look at what New Year's is. Why? Because God says you're supposed to be a holy nation. Other nations could have New Year's parties and drop the ball in New York City and have a lot of fun, but not Jews. Jews have a higher consciousness a higher responsibility to be a nation for renown for praise for 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 holiness that's what this commandment is telling us there's a special covenant between god and the jewish people that spans thousands of years god promises to uphold his part and we must uphold ours we'll go to one more subject and that is the beginning of chapter 27 of this week's torah portion which again is an incredible, incredible. And again, I always make a disclaimer, who am I to say which verse is incredible? Every word of God is equally incredible, but you could feel the, the beauty and the palpable uh, excitement of these verses, at least. So here the Torah says something amazing. You know, on the door of your home, hopefully every room in your house, as long as it's a clean room, you have a mezuzah. The reason you have a mezuzah on your doorpost is to remind you of God's presence in your home. God is with you in your home. You should conduct yourself even in the privacy of your home 
always holy, as we just said, because God is with you in the house. No such thing as I lock my door, I'm alone in my house. No, God is with you. And the mezuzah reminds you of that. I have to tell you that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who's obviously a great tzaddik, and you could see this on every video, on every, there's thousands and thousands of hours of footage and pictures. I don't think you could find an instance where the Rebbe walked into a room, didn't matter if he was 80 or 90 years old, that he didn't reach for the mezuzah and kiss the mezuzah. So we always touch that mezuzah as much as possible. Again, I walk through rooms all the time and not touching every mezuzah. But the Rebbe made sure to touch the mezuzah always. Why? It's just a way to remind myself, God is with me in this room. God is ever present. But listen <laughs> to what Moshe tells the Jews to do when they go into the land of Israel. He says, when you come into the land of Israel, again, that God is giving you. Never forget it's God who gave it to you. That's another thing. When you come into your house and you see the mezuzah, one of the things you can remember is, who gave me this house? No, no, no. You didn't just earn it and, and take a mortgage and, and, and pay for it. It's a blessing that God gave you that you have a home. So the mezuzah is on the doorpost. But listen to what God, Moshe says to the Jews. When you come to the land of Israel, you shall erect large stones, large boulders, and you should cover them with plaster. And then you shall inscribe on them all the words of the Torah when you cross over so that you may enter the land that Hashem gives you, a land flowing milk and honey that he gave as he promised and swore to your ancestors, your forefathers. And when you cross the Jordan, you shall erect these stones, which, which I command you today. In other words, just like you have a mezuzah on your doorpost, the land of Israel is the dwelling place of the Jewish people. It's the ultimate home of the Jewish nation and God. And therefore, there wasn't just a mezuzah on the doorpost. By the way, when you go to Israel, one of the things I love to always do is when you get off the plane and you walk down that ramp, if you know what I'm talking about, at Ben Gurion Airport, right before you come into passport control, there's the biggest mezuzah in the world, most probably. They have a mezuzah that's, I don't know, if I had to guess, I would say maybe five feet tall on the wall. I love to take a picture there with the family. It's like, okay, we're now going into Israel, the big giant mezuzah. And the scroll is like bigger than a Torah scroll. That's how big the scroll is. But the original land of Israel that when the Jews crossed over, there was large stones with plaster and they inscribed the Torah on these stones. So when you came into the land of Israel, you had a Torah on stones reminding them, this is not an ordinary land. It's a land that is the God's home, and therefore you must conduct yourself in God's dwelling place. If you were invited into the palace, right? The whole world is focused on Buckingham Palace now. If you're invited into the palace, you're going to dress a certain way. You're going to act a certain way. You're going to be very careful every movement you make, because I'm in Buckingham Palace. I'm in the, in, in the royal chambers. Well, Israel is the royal chambers, and therefore you had a Torah inscribed on stones with plaster to remind the Jews when they came into the land of Israel that you are now entering not an ordinary land, but the land of Israel. And one of the verses that it says here is that Moshe Rabbeinu taught the Torah to the Jewish people. It's in verse 8 of chapter 27. Be'er hetev. Be'er hetev means, if you look at it literally, it means 
and let me see how the English describes it, well clarified. And what does it mean, well clarified? So Rashi says that Moshe taught the Torah to the Jewish people in 70 languages. Originally, there were 70 descendants of Noah, so there's 70 different languages, and he explained it to them in every language. In other words, he introduced and infused holiness into every language. So if you're a Jew today, you know, there are Jewish books in Spanish and Russian and French, and even in Arabic, there are Jewish books translated. Because Torah is not limited to the holy tongue. Yes, that's the ideal language, but you could study Torah in every language. Every language is a vessel or a conduit to bring the words of God and permeate every language with Torah. So that's one idea that Moshe Rabbeinu, so to speak, sanctified every language to make it suitable for the words of Torah. But there's another idea, and that is that. You know, when you look amongst Jews, you know, two Jews, three opinions, but Jews are different. All human beings are different, but especially Jews. And diversity, God made a world filled with diversity. No two snowflakes are alike. No two fingerprints are alike. You know, we may look the same, but we're all vastly different, which means God loves diversity. Why would he make so many different, you know, species and so on and so forth and the same thing is within torah there's a lot of diversity within torah of course we have one torah it's not like different jews could have different torahs there's shabbat is shabbat and kosher is kosher mezuzah is mezuzah and tefillin is tefillin and that doesn't change but within torah take orthodox jews are all orthodox jews the same are they all monolithic not at all you have hundreds and hundreds of streams within Orthodox Judaism. Yes, they all adhere to the 613 commandments. There's no question about that. No one's going to say, well, I don't think Shabbos is that important anymore, God forbid, or I don't think kosher is that relevant, or whatever. No, mitzvah the mitzvah. But one group emphasizes more of this. Another group is more uh, focused on that. One is more, right, within the realm of Judaism, Every the 613 commandments, you have to decide based on your soul, what is my mitzvah that I really am passionate about? Which is the one that I want to emphasize? Which is my focus? What is my unique connection to God through? Everyone has a different point of entry. One person loves prayer. That's their thing. They spend so much time praying. Another person says, I love learning Torah. That's my thing, you know, that's my connection to God. I love doing acts of kindness, volunteering, helping people, tikkun olam, that's my calling in Judaism. Another person says, I love joy. I want to sing in Jewish song, you know. Everyone has their, their portal of entry, so to speak, and connection. And that's good. It's, that's the way it's supposed to be. What is your, some people, I want to go to Israel and serve in the IDF and defend Jewish life. Great. That's another mitzvah, right? God gave us, I would call it a smorgasbord of mitzvahs. Infinite. And so there's something in it for everyone. This, uh, we're all bound by the same commandments. We can't eliminate or distract, retract or, or delete, God forbid, any of the positive or negative commandments but we could choose where to focus perhaps more and that's why within judaism there are many different streams and many different ideologies based on different philosophies of what is the main primary focus or ideal of torah so this is some of the uh 
beautiful thoughts in this week's Torah portion. There is another major subject that we didn't get to, and that is the very, very harsh admonitions that the Torah says will occur to the Jewish people when they veer and stray from the path of the Torah. Much of the exiles and the suffering that we've encountered and tragically experienced beyond any belief uh, and imagination is all outlined in the Torah portion of Moshe Benu foretells what, what would happen. And we're going to read that on Shabbat as well. It's not pleasant listening to it. The custom is the Torah reader lowers their voice. It's also customary that um, whoever's up there takes the Aliyah. You don't honor somebody to this Aliyah, but it's a way of reminding us to stay true to the Torah. And it's sort of like if a parent tells a child, listen, here's the keys to your new car. But I'm telling you, do not speed. You could get into a car accident and you could get killed. And don't text and drive because you could get into an accident. You'll be paralyzed for life. You could say, hey, hey, don't be so rough. You know, come on. What are you scaring your kid, right? But you're not scaring your kid. You love your child and you don't want them to get into that terrible situation. So you're telling them if you do something, don't do drugs. You could, you know, fry your brain. When you go to college, stay away from drugs. I know somebody who did drugs and now they're, they're a pothead for the rest of their life, right? Why do you tell that to your kid? You tell that to your kid, not because you want to scare them or harm them. You want to save them from these terrible situations. And so God tells us some of the things that's going to happen. You know, in life, every action has a reaction, good or bad. We do good things, it brings positive reactions. And if we do bad things, they lead to positive consequences, uh, negative consequences. And it's almost unavoidable. So therefore, Hashem, out of his love, so to speak, gives us alerts, warnings, big red signs. Stay away from this. Don't do that. Follow the path I prescribed, and then you'll have the best possible life. So wishing everyone a great day. Looking forward to seeing everyone soon. Thank you all for being with us today. Shalom, shalom.